I invite you to turn to the gospel reading for today, uh, Luke 6. Luke 6, starting with verse 20. It's in your bulletins. You can turn in your Bibles as well. The Lord invites all of us to become saints. Everyone here, the Lord has an open invitation for you to become one of his saints. The saints of God are the people who shine with his glory like stars in the universe. This week I learned about the formation of stars in the galaxy. Stars don't form themselves. What happens is that there's a tremendous force of gravity that pulls together dust clouds and gases and other matter and compresses all of it into a very compressed space, a very small space. And what happens is that this results in a stormy blend of heat and light and energy. And over time, what happens is the atoms of these different matters fuse together and a star is born and it shines for eons of time. Now, how does God form us into saints? Well, saints don't form themselves, actually. The gravitational force of God's love unites us with Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And we are transformed and transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light by God's awesome power and grace. And then what happens is that the gravitational force of God's love continues to draw in people into our life. And many of them will be challenging people, irritating people, sometimes quite gassy people, rivals who make life difficult, enemies who wish us harm, people that we would never otherwise know or love are drawn into our orbit. And learning how to love these people is a turbulent process. Their presence in our life creates tremendous pressure and heat. But over time, by the power of God, the good work that he began in Jesus Christ is perfected in part through these people that God has sent us. And the stormy process perfects us as saints, and we shine for eons of time in the presence of God. God has called all of us to be, um, or God has sent all of us saint makers, the difficult and complicated people that he has asked us to love with our whole heart. Would you like to learn, very practically speaking, how to love the saint makers in your life? All the people that God has sent, you wouldn't have chosen them. It's difficult to love them. Jesus Christ gives us a very down-to-earth process for learning how to love them. First of all, he talks about the internal work of grieving with God. And then he talks about the external work of giving with God. Grieving with God and giving with God is a process of perfecting us as saints. In his classic work, The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis said this, It is good for us that we sometimes have some wearinesses and crosses, for they often call a man back to his own heart. And challenging relationships are one of those crosses that call us back not only to our own heart, but to the heart of God who draws near to his suffering children. Listen with me as Jesus speaks of this reality from our gospel reading. Um, As he talks to his disciples, he says this in Luke uh, 6.20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
Difficult people can make us poor. They can impoverish our energy, our time, our money, and they can leave us exhausted and drained. And so Jesus says that even if you're poor, you are blessed, which means very fortunate. How could that be that you could be both poor and blessed? Well, the reason that Jesus gives is yours is the kingdom of God. It's not because you're poor that you have the kingdom of God. You have the kingdom of God even though you're poor. And you can bring your poverty of soul or finances or energy into God's heart, into the kingdom of God, and grieve it with him. And you'll find that he's very close to you. And that this isn't the end of the story, that he has a plan for the situation that you are in. Jesus says in verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. If your relationships are easy, if all your relationships are easy, statements like this from Jesus are an enigma. All it takes is one challenging person who makes you weep. All it takes is that one person who makes you go hungry or even worse, takes away your appetite. And then you find in that moment that God can still satisfy your soul and that he can turn your weeping into rejoicing. Once that happens, these verses make all the sense in the world. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Do you hear the progression? Hate, exclude, revile. Have you ever been hated? Oh, it's a terrible experience, isn't it? To be despised by someone who wants to see you fail, who wants to see you suffer? Have you ever been excluded? Oh, you know the pain of exclusion? They don't tell you why you're left out. You're just left out. Doesn't it hurt? Doesn't it cut to the core to be excluded? What about reviled? Has your reputation ever been mocked? Have you ever been lied about? Has your reputation ever been in tatters? Have you ever been untrusted unjustly? Now, doesn't this start to feel like a slow and painful death? Hate, exclude, reviled. How in the world could this be making us saints? Yet Jesus gives this counterintuitive response in verse 23. Rejoice in that day. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus is unfolding for us this reality that it's possible to leap and skip for joy when hell itself is unleashed on us. And the reason is that God has a reward for us, that God has a plan for us, and that we have a whole cloud of witnesses, a whole starry host of saints and prophets and people who have gone before. They've gone through this exact same thing, and they can see the glory that is being forged and shaped in our souls. And they're cheering us on. Do you know what, what they did, our starry host, our cloud of witnesses, when their enemies left them poor and hungry and weeping and hated? They did their internal work. 
They grieved with God. And you know how they do it? They prayed the Psalms. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim, waiting for my God. Enemies make those words make sense. Enemies drive us to the Psalms, and the Psalms drive us to God. When the pressure is so great and the grieving is so deep, we find in the Psalms that God is so good. We find him patient with our raging We find him gentle with our weeping. We find him to be a solid, steady rock for our shaking legs and our shaking soul. As we grieve with God, something stormy is happening. There's an internal combustion process taking place. Our soul is being purified. God's putting to death some things that need to die. He's putting to death our illusions. He's putting to death... Um, our selfishness, he's forming in us a deeper capacity to love. He's teaching us how to bear evil rather than inflicting it in response and without being overcome by it. He's teaching us to endure, to overcome, and he's joining our sufferings with Christ's sufferings so that we find joy in that union, sweet joy, sweet union, sweet intimacy. I love that Psalm 69, which I read earlier, turns to rejoicing at the end, where David says, you who seek God, let your hearts revive. Same thing that Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him. Let the seas and everything that moves in them. Can you hear the joy that bursts forth from David in Psalm 69? You see, laughing and crying go together. Physiologically and spiritually and psychologically, they're a release, you know, laughing and crying. Laughing and crying in the presence of God um, helps us release all the outcomes to God of what's happening. Release our loved ones to God. Release our enemies to God. As we uh, laugh in the presence of God and weep in the presence of God, we become saints one tear at a time. This is the internal work of grieving with God. What about the external work of giving with God? So back to the stars. As stars are formed, the internal combustion that takes a while to happen eventually gives way to release. All that storminess eventually gives way to release as stars become beacons of light in an otherwise dark and cold universe. Stars give It's what they do. It's what our sun does. Our sun is a star, and every day it gives warmth and nourishment to our planet. Saints give. Saints radiate goodness and forgiveness in an otherwise dark and cold world. There's a time to grieve with God, and there's a time to give with God. Listen to Christ's challenge to us in verse 27 of Luke 6. I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Remember all those rascals we talked about, the difficult people? Jesus assumes that we're going to encounter them. 
He's talking to his disciples. Hey, if you have these people, it's not like something went wrong. When you have enemies, those who hate, those who curse, those who abuse or mistreat, when you encounter people who leave you feeling violated and humiliated and seething with rage, don't get stuck there. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if we did get stuck there? If, if, if our enemies robbed us of our dignity and our God-given agency to shine with his love. In verses 27 and 28, we hear Jesus activating us in those moments, loving, doing good, blessing, and praying on behalf of those who do us harm. That's what saints do. This is how they shine. In his book, Free of Charge, Miroslav Volv, a uh, theologian from Yale University, um, he tells the story of his friend Esther, who's not, it's not her real name, it's a real story though. Esther had an alcoholic mother growing up, and her mother abandoned her finally when Esther was nine years old. As a nine-year-old girl, Esther was extremely hurt, and in her hurt, she made a vow to herself, I will never love my mother again. She kept that promise to herself for 17 years, never seeking her mother out in any way. And then when she was 26 years old, Esther decided that she needed to break that internal vow. And so she tracked her mother down to a small Iowa town and without warning, knocked on her mom's door. The door opens and it's her mom. They embrace. Her mother goes to take her around to her whole community in that small Iowa town, introducing her to all of the people who were important to her. So excited. Esther could barely speak. It was an extremely emotional afternoon for both. They had dinner, and after dinner, Esther pulled herself together and said this. It's a paraphrase. Mommy, it hurt so bad when you left. I made a promise to myself never to forgive you. And I decided to break that promise. Please forgive me for never writing and never calling. I'm I'm so sorry. And her mother wept and was quick to forgive her. And then there was a pause as Esther waited for her mother's apology, for all the alcohol drama, for all the abandonment, for the deep, deep betrayal. And at some point, Esther realized, my mom is not going to apologize to me. And so Esther really shone in that moment. She really gave in that moment. She sat at her mother's feet. She took her mother's hands and she said this, mommy, I was really hurt as a little girl and I was really, really sad. But I want you to know that I forgive you. I know that you didn't mean to hurt me. I know you loved me then and that you still love me now. And I love you. I'm okay, mommy. My life has turned out okay, and I forgive you for everything. Can you see how Esther, beaming with God's generous grace to the woman who abandoned her, and her mother, warmed by the forgiveness of her daughter, her her heart began to melt. She began to rock back and forth and weep because she was finally able to see what she couldn't see before which was her own shame for leaving her daughter. And she began to say, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. Over and over again, I'm so sorry. Weeping 
cleansing from all of the pent-up sin and shame. You know, Esther, she did that internal work. She grieved with God. She then moved to do her external work, giving with God, giving truth, giving tenderness, giving grace, giving relationship, going first in vulnerability, even though she was the one who was hurt. You know, we can't do that with everyone, can we? We've got to exercise a lot of discernment and wisdom to know how this works. Yet we can all love our enemies by forgiving them and praying for them. And so a lot of people ask the question, how practically does that happen when someone's really, really hurt you? And I want to share with you the the essence of it, the secret sauce of forgiving your enemies. Do you want to know what it is? Once you're ready to do it, and sometimes it takes time to get ready, but I'm going to share with you something I learned from a psychologist named Robert Enright. And what he encourages people to do is to choose the person that you need to forgive and visualize their whole life from birth until death, imagining all the moments of pain and vulnerability that they encountered, all the human moments when they were hungry or afraid or in a bad situation or encountering pain from their parents. And in each of those moments, you ask the Lord to give you compassion for them and to pray a blessing over them. Pray that God would release them from bitterness. Pray that God would help them in their pain and suffering and bring them to repentance. What happens over time is that this practice of compassionate visualization actually helps us pray for our enemy and love our enemy and become generous of heart. This makes creative action possible when you've done that, when you've prayed for your enemy like that. Jesus says this, verse 29 and 30, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Jesus is giving examples of creative resistance to acts of harm done against us. In Jesus's culture, turning the other cheek when slapped, um, well, that was an act of insult. If someone slaps you on the cheek, they're trying to take away your dignity. When you turn the other cheek, you're actually saying, you're not taking away my dignity at this point. I won't be shamed by your action, nor will I react in kind. One commentator says this, followers of Jesus may be victims, but they are not shaped or determined by the hostilities and abuse unleashed on them. Rather, they are to take the initiative in love, forgiveness, and generosity. You know, uh, many people threw bricks at Martin Luther King Jr. Some even hit their target. People spit on Martin Luther King, cursed him, threatened his life and his family. He knew better than most how dark and cold this world could be but he didn't let the darkness overcome him. The only thing he threw back at his enemies was love and truth and a nonviolent resistance. For us, you know, it starts small. We have a much less dramatic life and calling than Martin Luther King. A waiter is rude to us. Instead of reducing his tip, we find that we have the capacity to increase the tip out of the generosity of God's spirit for every time we've been shown grace. A roommate helps themselves to our special Trader Joe's chocolate-covered cherries. (laughs) 
which are expensive. Instead of scolding them for it, we find the next time we're at Trader Joe's to go ahead and buy them their own tub to put a bow on it, to present it to them at an opportune time saying, I see how much you love these. Here's your own tub. Uh, Sky Jatani says this, Jesus is calling us to love the everyday enemies in our own households. The annoying humans who interfere with our wills and obstruct our desires with mundane regularity. This means loving the inconsiderate spouse, the self-centered teenager, and the absent-minded child. It's a call to love the disrespectful, disrespectful boss and the demanding client. So who are the everyday enemies God's brought into our life? Is there a creative, wise action that we can take to bless them? Can we see ourselves giving with God, acting out of the salvation he's already given to us and nourishing our world with warmth? You know, friends, Jesus Christ is the chief saint maker. He's the one who begins and ends the process of making us saints. He's the one who taught us to love our enemies And he's the one who loved us when we were still his enemies. He did not fight the soldiers who arrested him or resist the one nailing him to the cross. He not only turned his cheek, he stretched out his arms, spilled his blood, and gave his life. On the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He's alive today, my friends. He's here. He's in our midst. He's working in your life. And he's ready to pour his love into our hearts, yours and mine. His love is potent enough to make us saints. He is ready to cause us to shine like stars in the universe. And I don't know, this is the mystery of the cross, my friends, is that the love of Christ is perfected in us through relational pain. Did you know that? Isn't it a paradox? I wouldn't have chosen this. Maybe you wouldn't have either. But the love of Christ is perfected in his saints through these painful relationships that God brings into our life by his gravitational pull. That's where we learn to shine the brightest. Um, Bishop Nikolai was an Orthodox minister, and he was jailed in a concentration camp for speaking out against the Nazi regime. And like any prisoner of these concentration camps, Bishop Nikolai was horribly treated. He was tortured, he was, he was, he was you know, malnourished, everything that you can imagine. And he wrote a prayer that I want to share with you all, for all the saints here. He says this, he prays this, Bless my enemies, O Lord, even as I bless them and do not curse them. Enemies have driven me into your embrace more than friends have. Just as a hunted animal finds a safer shelter than an unhunted animal does, so have I, persecuted by enemies, found the safest sanctuary, having hidden myself beneath your tabernacle, where neither friends nor enemies can slay my soul. Can you hear his internal work of grieving with God? Bless my enemies, O Lord, he continues, even as I bless them and do not curse them, so that my fleeing to you may have no return, so that my heart may become the grave of my two evil twins, arrogance and anger so that I may amass all my treasure in heaven. 
so that I may for once be freed from self-deception, which has entangled me in the dreadful web of illusory life. It is truly difficult for me to say who has done more good and who has done me more evil in this world, friends or enemies. Therefore, bless, O Lord, both my friends and my enemies. That's what a saint can pray as the love of Christ shines through their wounds. And so may the star become a saint. May the stormy process give way to glory so that we may shine forever in the presence of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's take a moment to pray about Jesus' words.